Live from the home office of Ag Solutions Network, it's the Ag Emerge Podcast. We're here to move the ag paradigm forward by helping you regenerate your soils using new ideas, research, and emerging technologies. Get ready to improve your soils, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm Kim Sheese. And I'm Monty Bottoms. And we're your hosts. Thanks for joining us. You know, we're mixing it up a little bit today on the Ag Emerge podcast. We've just gotten back from the Ag Emerge event in Monterey, and we are pretty pumped up from all the learning and exchanging of ideas that went on. The venue and the food were pretty great, too. This episode's a recording of the panel discussions that we held while we were at the conference. Three of the panelists are growers from California, and the other three are their support team from California Ag Solutions. This is a real, unprompted, unfiltered discussion. It's centering around how they've chosen to adopt regenerative ag practices in their operations. We talk about how they felt, you know, implementing some of these practices, what might have made them reluctant, any train wrecks that they had while they were learning, and what they learned after making these bold steps towards change. It's a high-energy discussion that'll leave you excited about trying something new on your farm. So let's jump right in. Well, here we are. It should be funny. <laughs> well, one of, the, one of the things we got from your surveys last year is, hey, it'd be really nice to have a farmer panel. And it was said more than once, so we said we can do that. So we uh, voluntold. Uh, I mean, volunteered some of our uh, team members and, and farmers to, to help us out here to just go through answering some questions about how do you how do you adapt to change and how do you make new things possible. So uh, this is going to be recorded and be on the Ag Emerge podcast. So you're all live in somebody's truck right now. So you're live on tape, you know, something like that. I'm excited to have everybody here. I'll go through and introduce everybody. First off, we have Shannon East from Richard East Dairy in Madera, California. Um, they raise dairy forages, so corn, wheat, cover crops, alfalfa, tomatoes, almonds, pistachios, uh, and then uh, their crop advisor, Silas Rosso, um, also from California Ag Solutions in Madera. Kerry Crum with California Ag Solutions. He lives in Fresno and services the South Valley, and he's with Nico. Nico's from Hanford. They have a dairy, and they grow dairy forages, almonds, pistachios. Um, next to him is Antonio Perez. He's a PCA and CCA, so he has lots of TLAs, as we learned what those were last night, right? <laughs> so, um, and also he, he gets to work with Rob Shu from Chowchilla, California, a uh, longtime almond producer there. So that's, that's who we are. I've got some questions to kind of prime the pump and get us started. And if you have any questions at any time, we have our own version of Phil Donahue that'll be running around. Uh, or no, we're just, you gotta shout it out and we're gonna repeat it. That'll make it more efficient. So very good. So one of, one of the questions we had for you is, where do you fall on the spectrum of willingness to implement change from I'll try anything once to no way, no how, that'll never work here. And, and how has that maybe changed over time? And he went, you two have the mic, so you have to duke it out. Who's going to talk first, Shannon or Rob? Yeah, I was not real enthusiastic about change. I mean, I was raised, I've been farming for about 30-something years, uh, in trees for about the last 20. And when I've been with California Ag Solutions for the last seven, going into my seventh year, and when Silas pulled up, you know, I didn't know whether to have my snake boots on because of the snake oil or yeah. just what. Yeah. So. Panther pee. You bet. Yeah, there you go. But yet, he didn't, one thing about it is that he didn't guarantee me anything. He guaranteed me healthy trees, that's what it was. But there again, to, to make that change from a monocycle, you know, culture, just planning one thing and painting everything with a broad brush. And uh, the paradigm last year about changing that and te teaching an old dog new tricks is tough. But uh, so I was resisting for a little bit. So, but then hiring my son-in-law, which he's learning farming, so he didn't have all my bad habits. He's now 
pushing me along. All right. Want to hand it to Nico? Okay. Um, I, th I think I was pretty open to it. The first time I was introduced to it, I went with Kerry to listen to a bunch of hippies. Um, <laughs> that's what it was. And, and it, it was a strange experience, but there was a lot of truths being told with a lot of other stuff. And, uh, and then came back and then started talking about this. And then I think we, I was pretty open to changes. Sometimes I think Kerry has to slow me down. And then other times I think Kerry's absolutely crazy. And that's, I think we, you have to have somebody that guides you. And, and they, they have the time to go and look at whatever, cover crops, this, and then come to us, talk to us. We share our information with some of the other farmers. And, and then we had to have to advance. And I think in California, just to make a short deal, we have a very limited time to switch over to regeneration of the soil because when Sigma comes in and they're going to take our water away, we better be ready. So I, we have this fight. We have a very short time. We can put as much water on as we can steal right now, and then we're going to be out of it. So I think it, it's just a short time frame that we have, but I, I'm very positive. I think looking at all the systems, we, we'll be ready for it in a, in a very short time. Yeah. Um, yes, we're very apt for change. Um, we're open to new ideas within reason. We, I, me and my cousin started with Monty approximately 10 years ago. Or, or plus or minus. 16, yeah. Yeah. Um, if you're going to be in agriculture in California, you got to be open to change. And ideas, operations, so on and so forth. So working with Monty and then Silas, it makes it a lot more possible when you have support and collaboration. I would say maybe our first meeting didn't go the greatest. Yeah, but that's a precedent of all the crap before. Oh, okay, okay. So, <laughs> you gotta dig through some rocks to find a diamond. Oh, there you go, there you go. <laughs> but yeah, there's, it's, and, and as all growers go through it, you, you're, you're actually a human resource manager re interviewing the people you work with. And you choose like-minded people and it, it's a team effect, but you know, sometimes you get led down the wrong way and you have skepticism. Um, what makes regeneration so viable to me is it makes sense. It's logical. It's, it was all, like Nico was saying, we went to Eco Farm, right? It's just, it's, it's common sense. It's just how people manipulate it to accommodate their message. But the core values are very common sense. Okay. Well, another question we had ahead of time was, uh, what was maybe one change you're reluctant to make at first, but wish you'd had made much sooner? Definitely cover cropping. Um, we've been doing this the third year, and yeah, I wish I'd have done it a long time ago. I don't know where you guys were at. <laughs> but uh, yeah, definitely cover cropping is, is something I wish I'd gone back and done earlier. Why is that? Just the benefits from it. Um, this is the third year. Um, I was in, in almonds. The old theory was uh, 100 units for a thousand pound crop. So you can imagine seven years ago, I was putting out se uh, 300 units of UN32. A lot of units, a lot of money. Uh, last year, I put out 75 units and still made the same crop. And that's only with in my third year of cover cropping. Uh, but just the benefits uh, um, also from uh, bug population. I didn't do a mite spray until I just had to. I didn't do a navel orange spray this past year. Everybody thought I was crazy. Um, I'm still working on fumigation. I would like to get away from that. I know there's something out there that um, to get away from doing the four fumigation sprays that we have to do. Or fungicides. Fungicides, that's yeah. a fumigation. Fungicides, yeah. Thank you, Monty, for no correcting problem. me. <laughs> yeah, that would be my next, but you know, I'm, now that I'm on the bandwagon and rolling, yeah, I'm excited about farming. I was ready to hang up farming, I really was. I was at a point where I was frustrated with my trees, frustrated with what I was doing, and when you guys came along, I didn't understand the language. I've got a stack of books, which my wife wonders why I keep buying them. But I'm starting to understand microbials and stuff like that. So one day, 
it won't be going over my head. But it, it excited me about farming again and just, I'm like a new kid in a candy store, I tell you. Can't get enough of it now. Oh, that's great. That's a lot of fun. Antonio, can you yeah. share a little bit about what you've seen with the navel orange worm, the sure. lack of spray and the mites? What, what has that done for his threshold counts and those kind of things? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, something that, that we saw, like he was saying, this is his third year doing a lot of the, uh, the cover crops and everything. So um, it's a process. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and tell you guys that the first year is going to be, you know, successful year. I'm, can't guarantee any of that because it's like anything, you know, it's, it's a process that you have been doing for numerous amount of years before, 15, 20 years doing something. So changing something so big drastically is not going to happen. It does require a process, but if you do stick with it and be consistent with it, the benefits that you rip out of it, I mean, they grow exponentially year after year. And that's some things that we started noticing the second and third year of the cover crop. Um, the last year, um, we are we were so very used to seeing a lot of hot pockets throughout the uh, some of the blocks, some of the end fields, some of the areas with that had always uh, that were stressed all the time, and um, we started noticing that with the cover crop, um, we introduced a bunch more beneficial insects throughout everywhere. I mean, remember remember that one day we were just walking walking down the uh, one of the rows and uh, we would see insects um, just flying from one place to another. We would sweep our legs through the uh, through the cover crop and we were just amazed of how many things so we were, we were just thinking like you know this is exactly what we need to be doing to reduce a lot of the uh, um, um, pests a lot of the diseases coming down so we we did that um like you uh, like Rob mentioned um I don't know if, the, if he touched on it but you know he didn't spray any uh, he only sprayed one miticide um, last year where you know organic. and it was an organic um, insecticide where usually there's guys spraying two to three times four times maybe um, NOW the same thing um, and it seemed you know we just never really had a had any any pressures we the pop uh, pockets never appeared um, so yeah I mean that's some of the things that, that we saw throughout um, this year and we're excited to see what we're gonna be seeing next year with with the cover crop Good. Nico one change you wish you would have made sooner um, no-till wheat um, we, we bought a, a no-till planter um, after Kerry let me use the other one for last year, experimenting a little bit. And uh, so you're, you're a little, little skeptic, okay? So we had this alfalfa field, and Kerry said, leave the alfalfa, strip into the alfalfa. And like normal, I thought it was crazy. And uh, so we did that, and then we, we killed the alfalfa a little bit later, maybe too early, but then that wheat production that we got out of that was phenomenal. I mean, the tonnage was up, and then strangely enough, suddenly I had wheat with some starch levels in there, which is not very common for us. So all that is that that's been the biggest change by just not disturbing the ground. And I think in the future, you know, we've moved our paradigms, like we've got to think a little different. So I talked Gary, and I think our four-year plan is by the time we get out of this, um, you know, we want 4% organic matter in our ground. Um, right now, it's a little bit crazy, but we, we're already moving fast. We want 35 ton at 30% dry matter, and we want 42 starch. That's, that's where we want to go because of all this. He promised that, right? Yeah, Kerry promised that, and I told him I'll kill him. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> what, do you, what have you seen, Kerry? Um, you know, the, the, um, the fun part of what I get to do every day is to work with growers to get them to open their minds. Um, the, the, oftentimes I'm asked, you know, who our biggest competitor is. Is it uh, Simplot or, or, or Wilbur Ellis or Helena? or um, you know, other companies that do what we do. And I always uh, answer that no, the, the biggest competitor I have is the grower's brain. It's being willing to look at something in a new way. And to be able to guide uh, my growers through that process together is, uh, is, is uniquely uh, rewarding for myself. And uh, when, uh, when Nico, when I first started with him, uh, he was a precision planning customer. He, we had a, he had a planter and we sold him a few parts and, and he wanted no part of anything that we did as far as fertility or our other stuff. He was happy with what he was doing and we kept chipping away and chipping away and that was five years ago. And today uh, he's one of the first growers to fully implement our California no-till system across the, his entire operation uh, and, uh, and as long with several of other, our, our core growers that are here that have gone down this path with us. And uh, so, I, you know, my, my goal with a grower is to get him to look me in the eye 
and say, you know, that's crazy. That'll never work here. <laughs> and I know when I do that, that I'm, 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 I've done my job. I've got him pushed out to the edge. And, uh, and, and when we were able to do that, I know that I'm doing my job. So, um, you know, change is hard uh, no matter what we do uh, in any part of our life. But the changes that we're seeing uh, happening uh, to the ground, uh, to the operation, and, and, and to see the excitement, not only in, in, in Rob and, and Nico and Shannon, I, I know him a bit, and, and some other growers, there's, there's excitement that's being generated by these changes as, as they're starting to see the benefits as well. So that, to me, is, is the biggest reward. One change that you were reluctant to make, Shannon, that wish you would have done sooner. Or uh, multiple. Multiple changes? Sure. In farming or in life? Well, <laughs> <laughs> well. Wish I would have gotten married earlier. Didn't learn a lot of those lessons, by the way. You waited for the right one. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> I don't know. I wish I, um, I, I spent, I was out of a lot of the meeting circuits and going to meetings and surrounding myself by people that challenged me and kind of coming back into this regenerative ag has been kind of, whether it be Eco Farm, we went to Picinus, we've gone to Ag Emerge, this is the second year Ag Emerge, is just exposing myself to new ideas to think, because that's what you need to do is apply thought to all of this. So I wish I would have kept my finger on the pulse of what's going on around me but I'm glad I'm getting caught up now. And when you say, when you do that, it allows, you know, more between you and Silas, idea, bouncing the ideas back and forth from that same perspective. Collaboration, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then it's just, you know, there's saying you're adopting an idea and there's living a new idea. And this requires operational changes, mentality, and just how you do everything. I mean, to me, I enjoy growing cover crops more than almonds now because it's more exciting. An almond tree, I know the cycles of an almond tree. Cover crops, the second year we're doing it, it's like this didn't happen the way it did last year. I wonder what's going to happen now. So there's, I like the idea of all the diversity. I like the idea of what's happening and seeing it in the soil. We started compost and almonds probably 10 years ago, and the reaction to that I like the reaction of this. This is the same concept. We're just using root, root exudates. A lot of the things I've worked with you in the past, it's all culminated into this. And what I, I mean, I kind of make fun of Silas sometimes. You're promoting something to put yourself out of business. That's integrity. Right is right, wrong is wrong. Not many people are willing to do that. Well, just do the right thing, and it, yeah. all, it always works out. And that's why I appreciate Silas's friendship and trust, and yeah, I know he's there for us, and for the right reasons. Sure. sure. Silas? I'll give you your 20 bucks later. Um, <laughs> Just give me a hug, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think some of the changes that, you know, I would have made, uh, wished I would have made earlier. Um, so give you guys a little bit of background. I was actually a customer of Monty's before I ever joined California Ag Solutions. And so I've gotten to see it from both sides of the desk, I guess you could say. And so one of the things that, you know, I can appreciate when I first started working with Monty was that I didn't know he was a salesman. I had no idea that he was trying to sell or promote anything, but he was a resource that I was able to ask questions to. And I was able to kind of pick his brain. It's like, hey, I'm having a problem here. How do I figure this out? And he offered solutions instead of saying, oh, I've got a product that you can apply here. And so that's one of the things that I've really appreciated because I've gotten to see the ag sales from both perspectives. And I knew exactly who I did not want to be. And it was one of those things where I don't want to be that salesman just peddling something and just like, oh, that didn't work. Let's throw something else at it. But really spending the time to investigate. And one of those things that I continually see over and over is just, how much information is out there, but it's information. It's not always the right information at the right time. It's out of context, at the wrong place, at the wrong time. And so one of the things that I think that I would love, I wish I would have changed more is uh, long, long ago when I was a lot younger in that management side is being able to ask more questions and ask more questions of people who are doing great things that might be outside of my comfort zone of talking to somebody who's in organic or talking to them in a completely different space that might be like, oh, they're part of a different industry. But actually talking to people and asking them questions and figuring out how can I take what they're doing on maybe a really small scale 
and bring that into an area where we can actually do it on a much larger scale and affect a whole lot more acres and really make a bigger impact much faster. Like the parable is instead of giving me a fish, you're teaching me how to fish. Absolutely. And that's what I see. That's what I appreciate is coming to a meeting and being taught. You can give me anything you want. You can give me this, that, and everything, but teach me how to provide for myself. Okay. Well, let's talk about, um, Rob, the uh, trials that you've maybe had that were, were train wrecks at the time, but some of those uh, great things that maybe you've learned from it, something that you've tried in the past that you're a little skeptical about it, but still in going through that process and, and having a, something happen, you, you still learned or added to your knowledge base? Obviously, when I started cover cropping, I'm sure that that's going to be some of the questions that, well, what's what do you do when you mow it? You've got all this matter out there. So working with that, we, we were worried. I mean, we had no idea. We've, I've had grass out there. I've had clover before, but that, that's easily taken care of. Um, so that was a big worry, uh, and after the first year, I thought we made a mistake. I thought, oh my gosh, you know, coming out the end of the row, I've got nuts. I'm dumping out with my stick jack, and but the second year, I found out that it wasn't coming from the field. It was I'm planted every other row as a Carmel, and when we were going out, I was knocking nuts from the Carmel into the sticks, and then dumping it out, and then I'm looking at it going, oh, look at, then we realize, wait a minute, those aren't what we're picking up, that's from the end here. So, but the benefits way out, way the negatives. I, I don't see any negatives at all anymore. I mean, um, like I said, my challenge is, is in a different, I'm, I'm excited for the next step to see what I'm gonna do next. Okay. Yeah, definitely. Very good. Antonio, either working with Rob or someone else where you had a trial that was just uh, something went terribly wrong and didn't turn out well, but still through that process you learn something valuable. Um, <laughs> no, well, I think, um, you know, I, as far as uh, me, I don't have a lot of, uh, before I started working here, like agriculture experience. So, um, I mean, I, my dad did a little bit of farming here and there, but it was very minimal. So for me, it's just uh, fun being out there and learning a whole bunch with everybody, you know. For me, um, every time I go out there, I, I, I put a focus on where I'm, I want to learn. And, um, you know, of course, I, you know, I'm going to make mistakes here and there. And I've, I've, um, but for the most part, I, I try to learn, you know, from, from the grower, or a lot from, from you guys, um, kind of, you know, guiding not only the grower itself, but also team members and all of that. So, um, yeah, I think as far as uh, like a big, big um, um, sex, like nothing really comes off to the top of my head. I'm sure I've, I've had some, but. Sure. <laughs> no, that's fair. How about you, Nico? Train um, wreck that turned out to learn a whole lot out of it. Yeah, I wouldn't call it train wreck because farmers never have wrecks. Okay. okay. No, <laughs> okay, no, we did. Um, you know, just irrigation. In, in, we have all got flood irrigation, and we are all used to 100-foot checks. And uh, you know, we, all our equipment is set up for either 25, 20 feet, and we run up and down. So then Gary comes across and says, hey, well, you know what? You've got to get the water across in eight hours or whatever. You know? And then I've got the water on there for, for two days. I can get the water to the end of the check because now suddenly I've got all this growth in between, and I, I don't have enough water getting there. So you have these spots that just didn't get any water. So we learned if you've got cover crop, you know, everybody say that's a great thing it is, but it's a headache. The water goes down so fast. Now we're pushing this water and we're trying to get it to the end, but you know, that's a new problem. So then we started and we said, hey, now we've changed every, on the ranch. We've done a couple of fields, about three, 400 acres, but um, we've gone to 50, 50 foot borders and we've ripped out the old line and now we've put in 14 inch valves. So now I can push two and a half thousand gallons per minute, get it down and I can get to carries eight eight hours. I think that that's helped a lot. Oh, I got train wrecks that I don't talk about. Um, a, a couple of years ago, we did a project with a grower in Tulare, who's a fairly good sized dairyman. And uh, he'd called us up and wanted to do a pretty good sized project with trying strip till. So we went out and we did uh, uh, 
uh, we're gonna do 300 acres, uh, three different fields. And so we go out and we, we, we line out the system like we normally do, and uh, we're gonna pre-irrigate his, his ground. And, and we're out there with a the grower and his farm manager, and he says, well, we, we don't pre-irrigate here, we, we water all the corn up. So, well, you guys are nuts, you know, I don't know why you do that. It is, that's just not, agronomically, it doesn't make sense. I remember standing out there in the field arguing with him. It's always a bad sign. And uh, so we planted, we planted 300 acres. We planted the first few we pre-irrigated, you know, and they're, they're complaining about it. And the corn came out of the ground and it was, uh, it, it got burned up in the heat. It's like, man, you know, that didn't turn out so good. So we had to replant. And then the second field had the same thing, you know. And uh, it was really a big challenge. And uh, the grower was really frustrated and, and, and I was frustrated too. And Monty, I had the team involved. It was, it was a big ordeal. But the other 300 acres we did his way, where we, we actually planted the corn dry and we watered it up, and which I thought was nuts. It <laughs> turned out fantastic. So, uh, in fact, the grower was so happy at the end of the season, he came back and said, you know, this system, doing it our way with watering up the corn, is the best corn I've ever grown. And so you re I really had to take a step back and look at the fact, you know, you look at the agronomic things being correct, and, and, and sometimes you have to look at the system and you have to punt. And you have to look at what worked. And what I, I took this big train wreck and turned it into a system now where we're actually watering up about 30% of our entire corn across all of our acres now. And the results are that we're saving 10 days of growing time. Uh, we're getting great results. And, uh, and I learned something. And I, and, and I always thank that grower for, for letting me learn on, on, on that project because it was something that I thought was correct, but when we got into it, we had to adjust and look, and, and, and I, I know what happened, and, um, and we learned, and, and we adjusted. So, um, and that, that's what makes this job fun. Thank God we have growers that are tolerant of those. We try to minimize them, but we try to all get around them and bring the whole team in when these kind of things happen and find the solution to fix them. So, and we try not to ever have the same problem twice. And think, knock on wood, so far we've, I, I've been able to not do that twice. So, anyway, that's it. And that was a great unlearning story for me, too, because I was right behind you saying, no, we want to plant and not water out plant to moisture. And, and it was a matter of timing, you know, in, in, uh, in that particular area. And when it came up and you could see the hot day, the day it came up where it was the hottest was smoked the worst. And then the second day where it came up and a little bit cooler, it wasn't as bad. And the third day was, was pretty much okay, but there was enough embarrassment on the field it got replanted. All together. Well, so. the funny thing was, uh, one of my other growers here, Frank Fernandes, uh, who is one of my core guys that we started with, I was telling him, everybody around Tulare, which is the top dairy county in the country, right, has heard that Kerry burned up all the corn at Casa Bergen's. <laughs> it was a bad deal. And Frank took me aside one day and goes, hey, did you, tr did you try to pre-irrigate corn over there? I said, well, yeah, that's, that's what we do. He goes, you can't do that over there, don't you know? And I said, well, no. He goes, oh, yeah, that ground, it doesn't do it. And, and, and so Frank had a lot of input as well. And, and there was a lot, a lot of my growers, I enlisted, you know, and asked them advice. And, and we, it was kind of a, you know, Shannon touched on the thing. It's collaboration. A lot of times, you know, we get out there and, and we're doing things and, and we learn from our growers too. There's a lot of ideas and, and, and advice there that we can kind of bring into the system and kind of tweak and, and do some things with. So, um, you know, it's, there's, it's just the collaboration thing is really the most powerful tool that we have, I think, for being successful. Go ahead. You want me to talk about failures? I mean, um, we talk about them together, so. Oh, yeah. Um, but there's a lot of different types um, that I could go over. Um, I think one of it, um, if you want, I can touch on two main ones that I can think Bonus. of if you're ready for all this. Yeah. Um, I think one of the first ones the, that I could probably go back to actually was, in most of our minds, would probably not be seen as a failure um, right away. It was actually when I first started working, um, I worked with a large dairy customer. We had a lot of... Um, corn silage that we were working with, had fantastic yields with the whole program. We did on seed, some foliars, and when you averaged all of the um, production that we were working with, we are over three and a half tons to the acre better. And we also had like, it was a hundred uh, pounds of milk per ton of silage more with what we were doing. You'd think fantastic results, right? And so, um, talk to them during the winter time, and it's like, okay, what are we going to line up for next year? How are we going to grow this? And uh, the next year, I actually worked with less corn than I had the year before. So logically, you know, I was looking at it and was like, how is this, what is happening here? I, there was a great system here. It performed really well. Um, 
And so it's like, okay, well, this didn't make a whole lot of sense. And the next year still showed great results, but worked with even less. And so one of the things that I started to realize is even though agronomically, numbers-wise, we were making more revenue per acre, better quality corn silage, but the challenge was the support that what one thing that I was offering, because I really wasn't supporting maybe as good as I could, but also there were so many external factors that that grower was being influenced by that was muddying it up and that was other p opinions were coming in there. And what was really challenging is that grower had so much being thrown at him. And we all know like our time is so tight in a day. And so what was being presented as new, even though our numbers were good, it was something that was new. And there was a lot of opposition and pressure from other people within the operation saying, hey, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? The corn looks a little bit shorter. Well, yeah, but look how much bigger the ear is. Well, the corn's shorter. Yeah, but the ear's bigger. So it's one of those things, it's like that was that cycle that everybody thought, it's like we have to have tall corn. No, it was a better yielding altogether, but it was that perception of what that was. And so how I saw that is maybe I didn't support it as good as I could have of educating of why all the little details matter, but also realizing um, who are the influencers out there and found out a lot of them were from different sectors that I was, um, I guess you could say, taking away some of their business. And so, of course, some of those things were a uh, pretty big impact. So. I think making sure that we know that what we're doing is super important and what we know and how we're changing things is great, but we also as support up here and making sure that you surround yourself with people who are like-minded, who see it from the right perspective, who can also say, yeah, you've got good sized ears and you're making more revenue. It's not about growing tall, pretty corn. It's about growing the most cost-effective, best quality feed that actually will bring money into your milk tank. So who's making the decision? the neighbors or the other people influencing input costs or the people who are actually signing the check and actually getting revenue here. That's a, that was a big learning curve and that was frustration for me because I'm very much a logical person. I love Microsoft Excel details numbers and so when the emotional human factor comes into it, that can get frustrating because we all muddy it up some way. Anything that you learned from uh, something you tried that maybe wasn't successful, but you still learned a lot from it? I don't know if there's one specific thing. I just was trying to come up with an answer, listening to everybody else's. And I think it's day-to-day -day failures. is failure of uh, focus, failure to communicate your message. Um, it's hard, because I, I don't know. I guess when I make a failure, I don't dwell on it. I move on and look for another victory. So okay. I learned from my failures. We talk about them, but there's no point in being historic. Sure. You know, dwelling on a failure will create another failure. Mm -hmm. So I guess my opinion is... Learn and move on. Yeah, learn and move on. As long as you're able to play, be in the game and continue on. Okay. Very good. Yeah. So a couple mentions here. Talk about, you know, in your operations, because they're, they're different different scales, different levels of people involved, different ownership mixes and those kind of things. Talk about who all is involved when you do decide to change something um, that's a different way of, of doing things. I mean, obviously, Rob, you have to be on board, right? But I'm sure you, you have family, you have advisors, you have you know, neighbors pointing at you, you know, all those kind of things. Talk about some of those uh, maybe peer pr yeah. Well, the boss, and the boss. Uh, yes, and <laughs> no, the um, some of the, some of that, all of the different people who are involved when there is a significant change that you're making to your operation. Yeah, I, I mean, my operation obviously, I, I run it. Um, I have two silent partners. I have two brothers that we form it. And uh, in our uh, operation, I'm the one that runs it. Um, but yet, there again, if there is something that's going to be a major change, I will let them know ahead of time because obviously it's it's only right. Mm -hmm. um, but um, ultimately, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'm going to run with it. Uh, my son-in-law, Andrew, he's uh, he he's on the learning curve, but he's teaching me a lot of things too. He's actually pushing me. He'll say, well, why don't we try this, you know? And, and, and then all of a sudden that fear 
It's like, oh, I don't know, you know, I, I, I don't, you know, the old Rob's going to come back out and I go, I don't know if we're going to do that or not. And he'll go, well, why not? We've done this. So he has motivated me a lot to just keep going. Um, we talked about the fifth step, right, about getting cows or whatever. But in almonds, you know, it's so hard to bring in animals because of salmonella and stuff like that. And if it was up to my wife, she would have sheep out there immediately. She's, today she says, you know, why don't we just take one field and try it? Let's just try it. And it's like, no, no, we're not going to do that yet, dear. <laughs> you know, but... Um, so I, you're holding the operation back is what you're saying, Rob? <laughs> yeah, I am. Okay. I am. Yeah, you know. Back from being on the news for salmonella. Oh, yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah, he's promoting exactly. yeah, the industry good, yes. I don't see any little sheep turds and almonds back there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, but I, we have figured out on Imani, the, the fifth element is that now, uh, thanks to Keith, we've got all this new uh, vegetation coming out like I got kale now and stuff like that so I thought well what I'll do is you have people come in and eat on your you know eat your beef and mm -hmm. your well I thought what why don't and I don't mean this mean to any vegans in the audience by the way but I thought why don't we bus a bunch of people in from San Francisco and I'll spray pick your own salad make their own salad yeah <laughs> we'll we'll hand spray Caesars whatever they want on it and then they can go out and graze. This is, you know, happy graze, right? I'm worried about the electric wire, though. No, no, no. You know, they free. No, they'll be free-range grazers. Free-range vegans. Free-range vegans. Yes. So. Wow. Yeah. That's going to be my fifth that's, element. That's, that's a, you that's, you that's will a, be reading about it in the news, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's no lack of creativity up here, that's for no, sure. That's definitely thunking. <laughs> that is thunking, yes. I'm glad. I don't know if Holly's still around. I'm sure she would be wanting to talk to me later. <laughs> well, Nico, but, if, you, if you had any thoughts other than two-legged two omnivores on... Uh, <laughs> yeah, no. I, on I, all the people that are involved in that decision-making process, that when you're trying to make a make yeah, a change. Yeah, you know, be, by working for a dairyman, so you, you start this process, and you have the first question: Is it going to produce the same? Well, Carrie said yes. Okay, so <laughs> I, I'm I, well, yes. Okay, and then well, he heard from a neighbor, from a neighbor, but this program is expensive. Okay, well, maybe, but if if we keep the same production, can I do it? Yeah, we can do it. And then you. You start planting the stuff, and now you've got all the neighbors, especially if you've got this revered old-time farmer next door or working in where our office is, it looks beautiful. I mean, his crops are same height. He doesn't have weeds. I mean, and then the owner drives by where, where I'm farming, and being from Africa, he says, man, you're an African. You just look at this. And I'm like, yeah, I, I know. I love, I love weeds. And, uh, and then, you know, that's the first step. And now that we, we've, we've got a year under it, um, our starches came up, production came, fortunately production came up as well. Now my next step is really convincing them that, hey, now you've got to pay me more for my silage than the silage you buy from the neighbor because my starches are higher. But trying to get the dollar amount in their head, so it's just like you, you know, everything is better. Pay me more, no because the nutritionist cannot quite figure it out and he doesn't know how to put it into the ration. And I think that's our biggest challenge. Though. First of all is we're going to produce a more uh, dense crop. And then the second one is how do the nutritionists incorporate that? And I think that's going to be our challenge all the way to the bank. But the challenge is even in the sense with what we heard earlier is like you say nutrient densities. Yeah. Well, you work with a Dutchman dairyman. Yeah. They don't want to pay anymore. It's, it's the facts of life. So how do you quantify it, and how do you make an economic viability? How is that going to happen? You work with the Dutchman. I am Dutch. I oh. mean, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Just pointing that out. <laughs> but it's the economic... How do you... How do you quantify the value you're creating? Correct. Mm -hmm. Unless you... Yeah, that's, that's a frustration. Yeah, especially when you're building a dairy ration, then you're looking at... Um, you can do some offsets based on what the actual sample is, but you're building the ration totally differently on one, one silage versus another. What's that cost offset and production offset? Yeah, there's some complexities to it. So what you're saying, Nico, is you had owner involved. You have a dairy nutritionist who's part of that. 
um, decision on a change. Anyone else who's part of that uh, when you're making that change process? Uh, uh, no, basically no. It, it's just you know it, it's it's a little bit out of the box thinking. So we take I take responsibility for it. In the end, I'm close to retirement, so I can take a few chances. It kicks me out. I'm done. Um, but that, that, you know, that change and trying to get people, and, and especially when, when they see, you know, they, they, they look at that crop for 110, 120 days, and they're always like, nah, it's not quite what it looked like. That's before you cut it. Uh, right now, we, we planted some seed by aircraft because I couldn't get in. The field was too wet. And every day, I know I told him it's going to take 20 days before you see anything come up. I mean, we're not at 20 days yet, but he hasn't missed a day. He says, man, that does looks like a disaster. So, you know, this whole mentality of shifting and, and really appreciating where we're all going to. And, I, and my argument to him is, you know, we, we look in the Bible and, you know, we're stewards of the ground. And says, you know, we know there's a better way. So if we don't go the better way, we're really doing wrong. And that's my whole idea with this whole thing. Okay. Shannon, when you're making decisions on, on your operation, who are, who are people that are involved at different layers and levels to, to get new ideas implemented? You just say go and it's done? No. Oh, oh, oh. No. In, my, in my personal garden, yes. Oh. <laughs> um, I work with my cousin Richie, mm -hmm. and then there's a distinctive side. There's the dairy side and the farming side. Mm -hmm. So between me and Richie, we make decisions. And it's not like formal. Nothing's formal. We don't sit at a table and, you know, go through all that kind of stuff. Ours is, is we share ideas. Every morning we take a drive. So it's, this seems right. Yeah, I mean, if I ask and he says, give it a try, we try it. We monitor it, we watch it. I mean, sometimes, it's arrogant to say, but just by driving by a field, I feel I make it better. I just, <laughs> well, I, I just, every day I'm around the fields, every morning, every afternoon, all the time. If there's a question, I call Silas. I just, we're constantly doing it. So the decision process is, is there's a lot of latitude and it's, and I work in an environment where mistakes are not held above your head. And I think that's the biggest problem is mm. mistake was a mistake. Okay, move on, improve upon it, and go forward. I've read that if you celebrate mistakes even, that's good because you've learned through that mistake and, and somebody isn't afraid to try something again because it might be a mistake. So, I mean, obviously you're not celebrating them, but it's not, like, like you said, held over you yeah. from trying something new in the future. So, excellent. Um, well, we, I've asked some questions here for a while. I've got a few more questions, but I just thought I'd, I'd open it up to you if you wanted to know what Shannon's secret formula was or, you know, how, how he blessed the fields when he drove by them every day. We can go into those kind of details, or if you have it, I'm sorry, I know what you meant, and it was a very good point. The best thing a farmer can ever add to a field is his shadow, right? Well, that's the, just, that's the comment. You live it, you breathe it, you feel it. Yeah. I don't want you to paint my picture. I want to use the colors I want to use. Yeah. I want to be there. I want to be a part of every stage of it. Absolutely. It's like raising a family, raising kids. You, you fail, you bring it up. You constantly adjust. Mm -hmm. It's not five steps. It's five steps just like um, when we were looking at that flow chart about the, 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 the lettuce. It branches off into multiple different directions. And you got to be willing to make mistakes and be willing to ask questions and adjust. Constant adjustment. And like piggybacking on what Shannon was saying is that you do, you see it every day and you'll pick up on a change all of a sudden and you'll go, ooh, something doesn't look right. And be around it every day. I'm, I'm, where I'm at, everything I have is in one spot, so that's real easy for me. I live on the, on the ranch and so I'm, I'm around it all the time. And, but I enjoy it. I mean, it's. Gone for two days. You notice something. Oh, yeah. Right. You bet. Uh, you bet. You do. It's just part of what you are. Um, and that's, it, it is exciting. Mm -hmm. Any questions uh, for our panelists from, from the audience while we're, while we're here? Shout them out on what things that they've done facing change or. Okay. See, there's like, what, 3,000 unemployed comedians, and they get stuck with us, huh, in the state I, of California. I know. Well, if you're not going to talk, I'm going to talk. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> not in that sense. Okay, so 
I have a few comments on the whole, and it's a question to you as it is to me. I believe in these principles. I believe in everything we're doing. My problem is, is I see consolidation of farms continually at a rapid speed. I'm 41 years old. I've done this ever since I was a little kid. My dad was a one-man show. My dad is extinct. He's the dinosaurs of farmers. All the neighbors are getting bought out. Everybody's changing. So my question is, is why are we creating such this dynamic process and who is going to represent that in the marketplace? I asked that to Monty or I, who's going to represent all the changes? These changes that we're doing are based on efficiencies and input costs, take it down. But how are we going to get that into the marketplace and how are we going to reap the benefits of that? Any input from, from guys here, thoughts on how that will happen? You know, it's funny because we were, we were talking to Keith earlier and he was saying because our, our, the almond crop and what we're producing naturally, obviously it's not labeled organic, but yet we should be getting a higher price for it because we are not synthetically uh, growing our crops anymore. But yet, how do you market that? I'm, my my almonds are going right in with everybody else's, but yet my almonds are better because they're not drug addicted almonds. I'm sorry for the rest of you people that still use drugs, but mine aren't drug addicted. <laughs> <laughs> Where you guys need to get on board, you really do. Come on, I mean that was how it was presented to us. It was like it was. Uh, I think it was Juggy might have said it, or you know. Just learning from Tom and, and his way he irrigated different times and stuff. You need to visit other farms and pick up little things from other people. And then Juggy did it on a, a psychological effect on it. But yeah, I mean, we were force feeding synthetic uh, chemicals to basically we're drug addicting our trees. And it cost you a whole lot more than nickel bag. So <laughs> it's expensive. <laughs> But now I don't have drug addicted trees anymore, and they're natural, and they're happy, and they like me. <laughs> and my wife is saying, "Shut up, Rob." <laughs> I think she laughed. No, um, I think I like that. Um, I think one of the things, like addressing the issue that Shannon's talking about, and like, okay, if we do all these things, who? and how are we going to be rewarded for it? Because we're all looking for, hey, is there compensation for this? And I think that's one of the things with the marketplaces that we see that are coming on the horizon. Like you look at Amazon. I buy stuff and it's shipped to my door within a day to two days where you look back 20 years ago, that was never thought of. That was not possible. And so I think that's one of the things that is fun about a conference like this is we've got so many great ideas, so many thoughts that, you know, we need to look at how do we use value preservation in what we're doing. How do we monetize it? Right. How do we monetize what we're doing? Because there are some legitimate things that we're doing that are completely different, that are way better than the conventional way of things that I have done in the past. Because I've done it both ways. I've farmed both sides. And so being able to tell our story, and I think that's the biggest thing, is in general, we all need to be better storytellers, because this comes down to telling our story instead of le letting somebody who's crazy, who's in this space, do a great job at telling their story, but we suck at telling ours, because they're filling up the space. So we need to be a little bit more aggressive in telling that story and making sure that people know we exist. We are your food supply. We are the ones that are normal out here. But we're also in this space that we can say, hey, look at what we're doing. Show them videos. Show them stuff on social media. I don't even have a Facebook account when I'm saying this. But I'm hoping someone else does that. Um, but what's funny about all this is people love to see where their food comes from. They love seeing a video. Like, you do a great job with Grateful Grays. That is so cool. People coming out to see that. Shannon's got a great idea that he's going to be doing this spring. That, no, no, yeah, yeah. yeah, you can talk about that later no, if you'd no, like. No, no. No, you want me to promote it no, for you? No, no, okay, no, no, no. but I think it's those. Yeah, it's still top secret, so we'll uh, we'll bring that a little bit later. But I think those are the kind of things that are going to change how our marketplace looks at buying food. Instead of just like, oh yeah, I'll get the cheapest stuff. Yeah, it can still be inexpensive because we might cut out a few places in the supply chain. But if our customers know where this food comes from, 
they're going to be more likely to buy it from you from whatever space that you're at. Kind of like we talked to, like, speaking with Nico, we, this, this eco-farm thing is, when we went to eco-farm, we, before we went to that first thing, we were like, oh, we're farmers. You know, people like us. We're respected. We're farmers. That's who we are. We go to eco-farm, and we're basically crap. Everybody looked at us like we were, I mean, we were isolated by everybody at that conference. I've never felt so awkward at a conference in my life. But I mean, it was, at least we were there together as a group. You were there, Monty. Silas was there, and yeah, it was. It felt, and I was thinking, this is crazy. This is, how are we all going to get along and get the same message out? We were all there for the same purpose, and we were there in the idea that we have, a, we were representing a larger land base to have a larger change. That didn't go over very well. I mean, I was in a small group talking to people, and the guy basically just shut me down. He says, "We don't need your opinions." I mean, it's. Right is right. This is right. It's, I mean, we can talk about it for two days, but the hardest thing that I've, I'm getting frustrated with is how do we change a, a mentality? How do people work together and see both sides of it? That's where I'm, and I don't have the answer for it. I mean. Yeah, I, I just want to say this. So I have a daughter that's graduating, and boy, oh boy, it was interesting. So I sent my daughter away, you know, from Visalia, you know, conservative. She comes back, holy cow. Um, but it, what, what happened is last year, after this, this conference, and we, we were talking about food density, we had a legitimate argument about food density. And, and you know, we drink a lot of wine at home. After a few glasses of wine, and kept talking, kept talking to her, and suddenly she has realized that she loves this whole food density thing. She went to Italy, and she came back and told me how much better the Italians were. Uh, anyway. Um, but because of food density, so... I mean, these kids coming back from college and they've got some environmental kids are studying environment there and they've got all these ideas. And I said, grab a beer, sit with me in the truck and let's drive around. Because on the dirt roads, on the dirt roads, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I always told them we, we got to go smell some cow shit because you just talk the same thing. And, <laughs> but so they, they come from colleges and they, they have some of the principles are correct, but they are being taught in college. You know, she told me a lot of stuff about Monsanto or, or decalb and the way the corners and how bad we, we as farmers are for the future of this country and, and how, how this thing is going to go backwards. And that's, they, they firmly believe that. I mean, and I'm paying for that. So, <laughs> so I, I told her the other day, I said, we must just remember this. We're, we're getting to a point where we're building up the carbon. We're going to start sequestering the carbon. And if LA and San Francisco want to keep living, they got to get rid of the carbon they're creating. And we are the only source that can take it away so they can keep living. Sequester it. And yeah, we are in the point where we're going to start sequestering this carbon. And they, we have to recognize that. And they got to listen to us. But yeah, I got a daughter. I want Carrie to uh, go in on this a little bit. Your previous role was in the produce industry and in brokering and marketing produce and the initial question was is how do we bring more value or how do we how, we're creating value in, in the crops that we're growing in a better way H how do we how do we keep a portion of that value to help support our efforts and in, improve our profitability on farm so uh, money's right I was in the fresh produce business for 25 years I uh, uh, I sold for a lot of large growers I uh, interacted with grocery store chains all of the United States and all the major markets, uh, the wholesale sector, uh, retail as well. So uh, the biggest, a couple things. Number one, the biggest thing that you as consumers have is power. When you go to the grocery store and you ask for things, it really does make a difference. <clears throat> and when you go to the produce manager and you ask for something specific, it does make it up the ladder. So really the, the retailer in the United States is the gatekeeper of the products that get on the shelf. So, so that's, you guys do have votes, you vote with your dollars, okay? So that's, that's, I'm going to put that on you first. The second thing is I had a unique experience, and this is for the farmers in the room. This is going to be a difficult message, but I'm going to give it to you, okay? Uh, one of the problems we have with farmers that I see is there's a disconnect between consumers and farmers. And farmers are ducking their head because they get, they're getting hit on every side. You know, uh, my dairy farmers are the most regulated farmers in the United States of America today, and they, they legitimately have a reason to keep their heads down. The problem is, is when you do that, the other side wins. They do. Because I had the unique experience this year 
uh, with two of my growers. Again, I'm going to single out Frank Fernandes and, and Jonathan Lawrence over in the corner. I had two experiences with them. Number one, uh, we had an opportunity to do an article with an organization called Dairy Cares, who's it's a sustainability arm of uh, a dairy lobbying group here in California, and to highlight the fact that what these growers are doing uh, to with the soil to help uh, increase uh, the sustainability and, and how they're impacting the environment in a positive way. And both of those gentlemen were willing to do that article. A lot of my growers didn't want any part of it. They didn't want the people on the property. They didn't want, they don't, they don't want any notoriety. They, they want to be left alone because they're so regulated, right? <clears throat> so, you know, I take my hat off to them because both those gentlemen were willing to step up and, and to be singled out, okay? I'll take one step farther is Jonathan Lawrence, who's a young dairyman. Uh, uh, there was a, 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 a speaker from last year's Ag Emerge, Daphne Miller, who contacted me and asked if she would, she could come and visit some of my growers and, and experience what they deal with every day. I talked to seven of my growers, six of them said, don't bring her anywhere near my property. I, I don't want her, I don't want her here. Jonathan Lawrence was the only one, and Frank is, was there as well. He wasn't just happened to be there, but Jonathan said, go ahead and bring her out. And it was the first time she'd ever stepped foot on a large operation. And, um, and she went around, we toured her, she talked to Jonathan for two hours out of his day to talk to her. And that's the message that has to happen. So from that, from that process, she invited us, Jonathan and I, to go and visit uh, a group that she took to the Pacinas Ranch of all of her medical students from UC San Francisco, the most liberal of people you're ever going to meet that hate everything that agriculture is about. And Tom, uh, Tom Rogers was there, and Jonathan, I told Jonathan, hey, uh, she invited us to go to this thing. He goes, you're nuts, I am not going over there. But we went, and we interacted with these people on a, on a panel, we went toe to toe for an hour and a half. And, and uh, it was so interesting to watch these people interact with Jonathan and learn that he runs a large dairy, and what he does with his animals, and how he cares for them, and he was a real person. So it's that connection that we have to make. We as agriculture, we're so scared to make that connection because you guys get hit, and I know you do, but you can't stop spreading your message. The message is you guys care. You produce great food. You care about the environment. You love your families. You love the communities. You guys are active. You give. You're amazing individuals. Stand up. Let people know. Don't be afraid to spread your message. You guys have every right to be at that table, every right. Right, so, so you know, I take my hats off to you for what you guys do, but we have to stand up, you know. Um, so that's my message: is the way we get value is it's 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 a it's a war, it's not a battle. It's it's a bunch of little battles. It's when somebody asks you to come and visit your farm, let them come. It, when some group wants to come and talk to you, talk to them, tell your story, because that's where the value comes. Make the connection. It's it's it still comes down to being people. So that's mine. If, so if you don't tell your story, they will. Somebody else will. Yeah, and that's what we learned is if, if, you know, if you let somebody tell, you know, I'll give you an example. So a lady asked Jonathan, he asked her, I buy organic milk, and, she, so he, and, and he asked her what she pays. I pay $7 a gallon for organic milk. And he asked her, why do you buy organic milk? She says, because it's better. And he says, great, why is it better? She couldn't tell. Somebody else told her, that organic milk was better. And he says, well, uh, she says, well, it doesn't have antibiotics. Well, my milk doesn't have antibiotics. Well, it doesn't have this, it doesn't have that. My milk doesn't have that. My milk is the same as that. What? I, I, and you could just see the, the, the conviction drain out of her face. She had no clue. And, and it was a unique experience to watch Jonathan interact with these people, and Tom as well. I won't minimize his role there. He, he did really great too. But it's, it, to, these people hated what these guys did, hated it. But when you got done with them in a room, they were all talking at the end. They were just people. And they actually liked what they were doing at the end. They understood there was a connection made. So it's that connection. So you, you need to tell your story. Don't let them control it. It's your story, you tell it. Yeah. Amen. So one of the things that Scott just mentioned was, um, as, we, as the younger the generations are, the more removed from the farm we are today as far as percentage of the population and just that um, understanding has been replaced by fear. How do we address that? You want to say something, there's Shannon? A, there, I, there's no addressing it. It's a fact. It's not even, you can educate, it's a smaller group of people representing a large amount of property. 
How is Hancock Insurance going to explain what they're doing? How is, you know, the only one that's doing it on a large scale is Resnick. Whether you like him or not, at least he's doing something and he's educating about his products. Hancock's worried about their bottom line. They're not going to teach kids. We're making 8% this year. It's, agriculture is not going to... We're looking back 100 years ago when half the people were farmers. I can't even afford to buy ground today. So... I, I don't have there's I don't have an answer to it. That's why I came to AgEmerge. That's why I'm asking these questions. <laughs> because it's confusing. I mean, there's a lot less people with more power and more influence. They're making the margin on their statements. They're not going to say something without having a backside benefit to it. I don't know. And I will give a mad prop because I just, Silas read the book and Tom Willie, I was talking to him, just read the book Dreamt Land by Mark Arox and it's the history of California farming, nothing's new. And that's why I feel so much more comfort about it now, because it cycles. A little over 100 years ago, everybody bought their food from somebody they knew. They bought their meat from the butcher that they knew down the street and whatever. And, and we somehow, uh, during World War II or before World War II, we, we started this industrial model. And what we need to do is go back and recreate the old model, and we probably need to use technology to do that. I mean, <clears throat> you can sell your almonds directly to the consumer. And I don't agree that the retailer is now controlling things, because who in the hell is the retailer? And so if you're, if you're bypassing the retailer and going directly to the consumer, you know, I think it's a good idea to have a bunch of people come out <coughs> and harvest <coughs> graze on your cover crops and, and sell them almonds in the process and, and make that, a, make that a, a big day. Bring them out there a whole busload and let them pick, you know, you pick your own kale if you want to eat kale for some reason. <laughs> whatever, whatever you want, I'll give you the kale, but we'll sell you some almonds. Charge them for the dressing. Yeah, <laughs> and, and I wouldn't put the dressing on. But I, I, just, I just think there's, you know, go to Google Shepherd's Grain uh, on your internet and look up that group of guys because they, they produce wheat that goes to artisan bakers and, well, it goes down to L.A. Um, school district even. They're making, they're selling wheat and oats into... LA school district because they're using all these good techniques to grow their wheat and oats and actually the oats is coming from the Dakotas but it's part of their program and they're selling that on the basis of we're doing the right things environmentally they have this salmon safe program and a bunch of other things they're doing and they're sequestering carbon and that came again that was one of those things at a, a bar late at night um, and and I was talking to Carl, and I said, the thing you want to sell your carbon to is the consumer, not to the government or some company. I mean, the, the lady that drives in to the grocery store with the Suburban and leaves it running while she goes in and gets bread because it's either too cold or too hot, you know, for the dog that's in the Suburban, and, and she feels guilty, and she gets this little slip of paper that says, I've, we've sequestered X amount of carbon in the production of the wheat that grows this bread. I mean, that's the kind of thing you need to do. You need a marketing person and, and, <clears throat> and going right to the consumer. Why, why are we letting the retailers, especially like the Walmarts and stuff of the world, why are we letting them control the message? And maybe, maybe you've got to say, we do this and my neighbor doesn't do this. And don't say he's a bad guy. Just say, this is what we're doing, and this is why we're doing it. It's the right thing to do. Some of the messages I heard today, tell the consumer. Don't tell each other. And if you've got the insurance company running a big dairy and not paying attention, you know, make sure you, you say, check with whoever's producing your milk to make sure they're doing these things. This is what we do. When we produce our almonds or our corn or our beef, you know, you're doing that. This is what the way he produces his beef. And, and it's not like feeding them in a feedlot in Nebraska. So 
I mean, I, I just, I think we just need to use the technology we have. That daughter of yours, you could put her to work. <laughs> <laughs> I have three daughters, by the way, and, and I, I, that's not what I had in mind when I asked the genie for a house full of women, so. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I, I really appreciate all your... your thoughts and input and it is a frustrating thing and how, how do we we're really really good at production and, and we're great at the manufacturing part of our products and there's probably not enough time that we focus on the selling and the marketing of our products and that that is something that technology has the possibility to, to enable that maybe we didn't have before there's still a convenience factor like Carrie says the go-to is the grocery store that's changing and it, it's changing quickly and there's there is a lot of hope for us to be able to do those kind of things. So everyone tell your story, tell Ag's story. I've always been big on our grass-fed beef where I, I talk about the positives of ours, but I do not run down grain-fed feedlot beef. I just say here's the positive of ours because my neighbor has a hog confinement. I have another neighbor that has, you know, a beef yard. All, you know, dairymen, you're all our customers and friends. That's how you produce them. I don't think that's wrong. You're doing it for your purpose because that's what the channel and the consumer that you're working with. We're just a different channel and a different consumer. So whatever you're producing, tell that story and get the value out of it. Try to go further down that chain to, to get it out of there. And we'll be looking forward to your presentation next year at Ag Emerge on, on the secret project um, that you have going on, Shannon. So anyway, with that, we're going to go ahead and take a break. We sure hope you enjoyed this discussion as much as we did. It covered the gamut of issues and ideas growers face as they work to change and improve their operations. I think one of the biggest things I came away with was their enthusiasm and just a renewed excitement about farming and how they could leave a legacy. Aggie Merge has a broad range of speakers, busting out of that old egg paradigm and challenging us to think differently. We look forward to bringing you more new thought leaders as we charge forward into 2020. We hope you make it a great day.